Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, mi gente. If you haven't heard, I am here to share with you. The Wine and Chisme podcast has launched the very first Latina-owned wine brand directory ever. Just go to the wineandchismepodcast.com, then go to wine brand directory. There you will be greeted by me. But more importantly, you will be able to choose a winery first by region, then by county. And the wineries in that area will not only be listed, but you can connect directly to them from this site. It couldn't be easier than that, right? Use this directory to plan your own wine adventure or learn about some of these Latine vintners or share it with a friend and have them buy some Latine wine as well. You guys, this is the first time that something like this has ever been available. So go use it and support our community. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. Today, my guest is Meg Medina. Hola, Meg. How are you? Hola, Jessica. ¿Cómo estás? I am wonderful. I'm actually really excited because, you know, you're an author and a speaker and I grew up obsessed with books and obsessed with writing. And I actually still ended up writing in some capacity. I'm the director of communications for, uh, in, in the political realm and the government realm, but I don't know. We'll get into it later. We'll get into it later. I don't want to get into too much. <laughs> But you are, Meg is award-winning and New York Times best-selling author who writes picture books, as well as middle grade and young adult fiction. So before I go into some of the titles, um, which are freaking awesome, by the way, I have so many questions in there, guys. When she's not writing, Meg works on community projects that support girls, Latino youth, and or literacy. She is a faculty member at Hamline University's Master of Fine Arts in Children's Literature and lives with her family in Richmond, Virginia. Before we get into all of the cheese, may we always start with the wine. So what are you drinking this evening? Bueno, tonight I am drinking red, which is very unusual for me. I usually drink like a Pinot Grigio, very light sort of things. But today I'm um, drinking this, a Rioja. Um, oh, I love a Spanish nice. wine that uh, Javier, my husband Javier, is really the wine guy around here. Um, you can't see it, but 
you know, we have, he, 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 every time he goes out, he comes back with two more bottles of wine. It was a great price. It was the, the kind I like. It was this, yeah. it was that. No, so I have- love, cause I have a very small wine refrigerator and I love how your wine racks are horizontal so they can lay down like they should. So they don't settle too much and get too much sediment doesn't come out of it and everything. You're going to have to let me know where you got those wine racks because literally I have been looking for wine racks and trying to figure out what to do. And I love, I love that look. I am actually normally a red wine drinker. I love red wine. I actually have more red wine than anything else and different varietals of red, but it's, I'm in San Diego. It's warm out here and I just wanted something cool and refreshing. So I'm actually drinking one of my favorite whites which is a white blend from a Latino vintner. It's called Seisoles Wine. And it is a white blend of 62% Albarino, 38% Grenache Blanc. And it is so good. It's one of my absolute favorite white wines. Yeah, I love white wine. And I, I also like to drink white wine, like straight, of course, but I also like to mix it with seltzers and pieces of citrus, like in the summer, especially mm-hmm. oh, when yeah. you're trying to cool down. I love that. I love a good sangria. Right, like, Rico. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sangria, paella. Let's put it all together. Like let's, you start let's with wine it. and then you just keep going. <laughs> I mean, hello, that's what you have to do, right? You start with wine and then you just let your imagination go. I always tell people that regardless, they they can drink whatever wine they want. I'm not here to judge them because I've had so many people be like, oh, I'm so embarrassed to tell you what kind of wine. I'm like, don't be embarrassed. Like we all have, just like we all have different palates when it comes to food, we all have different palates when it comes to drinking. So some people like whiskey, some people like vodka, some people like wine. So like, you shouldn't be ashamed of what you like. It's okay. It's totally fine. But salud. Salud. through the the magic of video clinking that's right oh god that's so good yeah this is actually this is a bottle of this is only like 19 dollars. oh that's a beautiful part about wine i think too right like it doesn't have to you could get a decent bottle of wine without breaking the bank you know, yeah. you can get a, a nice, a decent bottle of wine for a good price. So, and you, and yeah, there's definitely some that are higher and they taste amazing, but there's definitely some that, like you said, that are a lower price point that, you know, taste really good as well. And you don't have to spend, you don't have to spend a hundred dollars. Now I've tasted hundred dollar, 200, $300 wine. I'm not gonna lie. And some of it, most like some of it, I've been like, oh, wow, this is really good. And there's been a couple of times where I'm like, it's all right. <laughs> right, right. Just, you For know, $100. Right? Yeah. Oh my God. The price point doesn't necessarily dictate the taste. There's a lot that goes into the pricing of wine. There is like how many barrels are being made? What kind of materials are they using? Are they like, how long is it like, there's just so many different things, you know, was it a good, for example, the fires that came out in 2020, anything that's in the Napa Sonoma area, if it can't, because it wiped out a lot of vineyards or taint, they get the smoke taint and they don't know how it tastes until later. So if it's coming out of a small vineyard, 
those wines are going to be expensive because there were a lot of ruined grapes. So, you know, and we are just waiting and seeing what comes out from, you know, it's going to be because it's going to be a very small production from that year in those areas. When will we know? When do we start to see that? As as a novice, I don't know the answer. Well, whites are usually picked before the reds. So whites, I think, are already starting to come out like whites and rosés and Again, a lot of those happen before the big fire. So a lot of those are still okay. Reds, it'll probably be at least, uh, you know, at least another year or two. Okay. We'll have to, you'll have to keep us posted on on what the result is. I'm really curious about like the smoke effect on, on grapes and all of that. Oh yeah. And a lot of times you can't tell, like from what, you know, when I've talked to these vintners and everything they're like you can't tell when you're actually making the wine you you don't tell until after the wine's been fermented and every like basically you have to go through the entire process so some a lot of people sold their grapes to like very large places where they can mix it all apparently this is what i was being told so i would stay away from you know if it's not a small producer where they don't want their wine you know they don't want their name associated with anything that tastes bad if it's a really really large producer for 2020 they probably mixed it in with a lot of different things so i don't know well i guess like i said well i will have to wait and see and how that ends up coming out (laughs) (laughs) so let's get into the chisme oh let's do it yes let's do it i was thinking all about chisme were as, you? As just as a concept. Yes, I was. Well, I you was. are a words person. So I could see like the reason I chose chisme as part of is with because chisme is a play on wine and cheese. Right. <laughs> and when we talk, <laughs> che- we're, you know, we're spilling the chisme. So it just worked both ways. It is um, a really clever name, I got to <laughs> say. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a first generation Cuban-American. You grew up in Queens. You're definitely an East Coast girl because you're in Virginia. You, but um, tell me about what your experience growing up in Queens as a first gen Cuban American was. So you got to go back a while, right? Because my my parents came in that first wave in in like the '60s and so on. So I was a little a kid and a teenager, like in the '70s and in the early '80s in in New York. In New York's history, you know that was a really hard time. A lot of crime, a lot of um, you know just economic pressures on people. That was the year we had Son of Sam, for example. In 1977, mm-hmm. we had a serial killer who was murdering girls. I was 14 that summer. And, you know, my parents had come from Cuba and unfortunately their marriage didn't survive. So my my father went his way to Massachusetts um, and established himself with another family. And my mom raised us in Queens and she worked in a factory. It was a transistor factory, you know, like inside a transistor radio, those little things. And yeah. really my tias worked there too, right? My they were they branded the transistors and my mother put them in styrofoam boxes and, and was in shipping. But it was a sea of Latina ladies. It was all these immigrant ladies. You know, they were all sort of in shock, I think, you know, in having a lot of them were from Cuba and they were just in shock at like 
all that had happened, right? And here they are in this gigantic city and their lives are upended. Pero eran presumidas, you know, like they would go get their hair done on Friday at Fabio's for $3.50. They all ended up with the same like hairdo, right? Sprayed aquanet, <laughs> right? Oh, no, it was like a little helmet. And they were, I was thinking about the word chisme and I was thinking about them because at two o'clock every afternoon, my mother would go to the back where they used to clean the, the numbers off the transistors and she had esa cafeterita de cubana, you know, the Cuban coffee pot. And she'd put it on and she made coffee for everybody. And at 2.30 in the afternoon, they'd all stop. It, they were like little Cuban zombies, right? Latina zombies with their <laughs> esa tacita, right? <laughs> Heading to the back room. And my mother would pour the coffee. And y después se sentaban ahí. They would just sit there. And, and it was sort of chisme. Right. Like they were talking about, you know, what was happening in this one's life and that one's life and what they heard was happening with the bosses upstairs and who was doing who up there. And, you know, like all that stuff. Your New York and, comes out when you're talking about this. I love it. Oh, well, that's it. I mean, that was so it's so vivid to me. But you know what else they did? They they also like figured out how to support each other. Like they told each other how to get their kid a social security card so they could start working and how you figured out financial aid papers if your kid was seriously going to go to Queens College or wherever they were going to go, stuff like that. And so, you know, there was chisme, like everybody always had an opinion about somebody else's life, but there was also like this enormous love. And I wrote about those women, right? So when I was writing Burn Baby Burn, I set my novel in Queens in 1977 during that year that Son of Sam was murdering girls. And I gave um, Nora, is the main character in that novel, and uh, she works part-time in a beauty salon. And all those ladies, I, did, I didn't make it a factory, I made it a beauty salon, but all those ladies are sort of in those characters. You know, how loving they were to each other, how supportive they lent each other money on rent days if somebody ran out of money, like all kinds of stuff. So like, it was a hard way to grow up. I think there was a lot of crime. I felt very detached from my mother also because, you know, I was born here, right? So I was growing up La Americanita, right? I had a very different aesthetic and New York City in 1977 aesthetic. And here was my mother who was like from Cuba where you went out on dates and chaperones and things like that. Like we were nothing alike right? Which was always our lifelong drama. But it was hard, hard way to grow up and not a lot of money and a lot of tension and a lot of sadness and trauma, right? From all my mother had lived through. But I also think there was a lot of love to be found, like in the community and in my aunts and in my grandparents and things like that. So I don't know, it was a, it was a little bit of everything. It was a little bit of everything. Wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese mix. Hola, chicas. The summer we've been waiting for is right around the corner, and our friends at Ulta Beauty wanted to share the following hair care must-haves. Starting off with Andrew Fitzsimons Prism Shine Glossy Shampoo, formulated with hydrating coconut oil, derived ingredients, and aloe vera, delivering a glossy glow to dull hair. The moisturizing treatment glides through and makes hair super shiny, leaving it silky smooth from root to tip. 
your next summer must-have is Sunbum's Heat Protector, which lets you say no to heat-damaged hair, decreasing blow-dry time, and helps protect against thermal damage and breakage. This two-phase protective formula is lightweight, nourishing, and works quickly to help eliminate frizz and resist humidity, keeping hair healthy and hydrated. This last-minute must-have is new, and our friends at Ulta Beauty are excited to share that Olaplex Number no. 9 Bomb Protector Nourishing Hair Serum is now available at Ulta Beauty. Protect your hair from daily damage with this weightless leave-in silicone-free hair serum to shield hair from pollution and provide heat protection up to 450 degrees. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Ulta Beauty today and shop in-store or online for all your summer hair care essentials. I have two questions popped into my head while you were talking about that. One, being 14 during that summer, that summer Sam, was there like a palpable nervousness just even being outside, like, especially at that age and especially like these things going on that you're probably like trying to even like, how the hell is this happening type of, you know, thing. How were your feelings during that time? So I was a little too young for the disco scene. Right. So that's where really all of this was going out. Like, because in New York at that time, you, that drinking age was 18. So really by the time you were 16, 17, 18, you were already out in, in discos and dancing. But, you know, I spent a lot of time hanging out in schoolyards and with friends, you know, on the street to my mother's horror and things like that. And all okay, of that. Became, yeah, yeah. To, my, to her horror. Right. She was like, I was becoming the girl like she really didn't want me to become. But anyway, I think everybody in New York was just like afraid, like they set up a hotline for Son of Sam. So you could report who you thought might be Son of Sam if you had a tip. And the task force was located at the 109th Precinct, which is in Main Street Flushing, which was our local thing right down down the street. So. You know, that hotline was always like people now don't understand with cell phones and things like that. It just goes to message. But then, right, you got a busy signal. Right. And it was always the line was always dropping. And and there was a busy signal because everybody thought it was the super in their building, their science teacher, the bus driver, uh, you know, that weird guy who walks down the street. Like everybody had a theory of who it was. And, you know, there were a lot of girls who dyed their hair, cut their hair, wore bandanas. Because um, he wa- he went for a particular type of girl, he right? He would write to us in the newspaper after he murdered someone uh, that he was going to come back, uh, that uh, he was waiting, that he wasn't going anywhere. It was, it was really chilling. He would write the letters in the Daily News. And so, yeah, his MO was young women with dark brown hair long dark brown hair and he would shoot them in cars with their boyfriends like so when if you were out on a date with your boyfriend you know you didn't want to be in a parked car kissing or out on the street or anything like that so it was just really weird I remember trying to climb the steps you know to to our building and so on and you were just afraid you were just afraid that there was somebody waiting for you on the landing or in the elevator or it was the person you were going to least expect And all of that, when I was writing Burn, Baby, Burn, like there's the stuff you remember, which is like the emotional truth of the experience, right? So I had to grab that sense of terror that sat right next to the sense of being young. And when you're 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, sometimes you think nothing bad can happen to you. So you're scared to death. And you also think nothing. Because it can't happen. happen to me. It's fine. Right, I'm going to the disco. What could happen? And so 
both of those things happen at the same time. And then that summer, what happened is that we had this heat wave. It was like 100, 105. Like Were there the, like a ton of blackouts and stuff like that too? Well, the big blackout happened. And during this heat wave, when we were already losing our minds from the heat and Son of Sam was out. And that night, the lights all went out in Queens. My mother had gone out with my sister to the corner store. And my first thought when all the lights went out, first you heard a big scream on the street because every light went out in New York, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, Bronx, like all the boroughs, la boca de un lobo, like no lights. And people screamed. And I, my first thought was, son of Sam is here. You know, like it, my time is up. So it was a weird time. It was a really weird time to grow up. It was also like the women's movement was going on then, like the rush of like Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug and all of the women marching, you know, for rights and all of that. And of course, now we look back on it and, and, you know, have hard and valid questions about intersections and who was left out of that movement and all of those things. But at the time, it felt exciting just to see how pissed off women were and how much they were demanding to be heard. It was crazy and fantastic. And, you know, it was sort of like the fashion, right? Just outlandish and <laughs> in your face and, and all the things and all the things. So, you know, it gave me a lot of stuff that I could use uh, when I wrote Burn, Baby, Burn. And one of the things I'm most proud of when, when people read that novel is, especially people who lived in New York at that time, who read it. And they say, oh, man, you got it exactly right. And I did, man. I did research on that book like you wouldn't believe. TV guides. Like if I tell you in that novel on page 19 that such and such show was playing at 8 o'clock that night, that's what was playing. I remember the TV guide. I'm old enough to remember a TV guide. Yeah, I'm not I'm not as young as I look. So I know I look so young. You do. Una niña. Una niña. I'm, a, I'm in my mid 40s. I'll be 45 in November. You do look young. You look wonderful. So speaking of, did you try and escape? Because obviously you're a writer. When you write, you read, you're like you have to you're oftentimes they go hand in hand. People are voracious readers and that encourages them to write. So what did you, are those things that you used to escape during that time or as you were growing up? Was yeah, that something I, that you used? I think I always like, all right. So first I'm going to say, que mi gente eran cuentistas, right? So vamos a chismear. We say chismear, but we also hacer cuentos, a platicar, whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever phrase. It means we want to blab, right? And we want to blab stories about, and in my family, I think they used it to really heal some of their trauma because they spent so much time, me hablaban de Cuba, 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 right? Who, who their friends were in Cuba and what their house was like and who their, you know, like oh, that time that she dated so-and-so and the time that the pig did this. And, the, you know, they created a universe for me on this tropical idealized island, Right that created like an imagination for me. Y abuela, my mother's mother, she went to school only until like the eighth grade. But that woman could tell a story 
Like you couldn't believe she was so dramatic and she knew just when to pause and wait, make me wait to find out what happened after that hurricane, et cetera, et cetera. So I got my timing from them, I think, and the sense that stories sort of clarify your life. And that's what it does. That's what Cheeseman does in a way, right? We yeah. talk it out with our friends and we're clarifying our life. And so when you write books and when you write book, books for kids, which is mostly what I do for kids and teens, I'm doing the same thing. I'm giving them a story that helps them sort of think about and clarify their life by looking at this event that's happening in this character's life. And so, yeah, I was a reader. I loved stories and I love stories about people, like what people are going to do in a particular situation. Like it's never like when I'm writing, reading a book, there are books with like a lot of stuff going on, like these big, big plots. Those are never the books that completely steal my heart. The ones that completely steal my heart are often the quiet ones. The ones that are about this thing that happens to this one particular person. And you're just so curious to see how they're going to react, how they're going to solve it. And I'm curious about that in people in real life too, you know, yeah. I'm curious about it and I unpack it in, in writing as well. Even like the Mercy books, the Mercy Suarez series, which ends now in September coming up, I have Mercy Suarez Changes Gears was, came out in 2019 at one eighteen actually, and won the Newberry, which was a very big deal. And then I couldn't stop thinking about Mercy and her family and the Suarez family and how they were going to deal with Lolo's Alzheimer's and Mercy's growing up and love and all the things that get thrown at families. And so it's been a journey. And now in, in September is the last of those, of those three books. And um, I swear to God, I feel like I'm going to miss them. I feel like my best friend is moving because they become real. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm not somebody who liked a lot of candy and stuff growing up. So when my parents would make me Easter baskets, they would be full of books. Oh so growing up, I loved like the Sweet Valley Twins and then the Sweet Valley High. And then I loved Mary Higgins Clark. I loved the mystery stuff. I like I was constantly reading and I feel so bad. Like I have all these books that I still need to get through now. And this is my form of storytelling, right? Like I get to have people yeah. on and ask questions and be able to preserve their story through this podcast. I always say that this is who I've always been, right? I've, I was always the curious kid, like wanting to know everybody's story. Now I just record it and get to drink wine, but it's still the same <laughs> thing that I did. Uh, that sounds like a good deal, <laughs> right? I mean, hey, but I remember because I used to, I, I would write short stories. And I remember my very first short story was called The Bomb. And it was about a bomb that they had to find. It was in a hotel. I was in third grade. So I was like eight years old. And I still, I don't even know how I remember this. And how are they, are they going to find it on time? Like, I thought I was just like the next, I don't know, whatever. Do you remember the first thing that you wrote? Like, that's the first thing I really remember. And like I said, I was eight years old. Yes, I do. I do. And I even remember what it said. So I had this teacher, Mrs. Zuckerman in the third grade. And, you know, she was one the really nice teacher that everybody likes, right? That everybody wants to have. 
So I was just, I felt so lucky to have her. She was really, really wonderful. And I was hard to pin down. You know, I, I had ants in my pants. I was always busy. I was, you know, but I did like story and I did like writing. And one time, one day she sat us down, you know, this was the whole country was in this sort of like anti-pollution drive, right? We had, all Hands these commercials. The <laughs> yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Marla Thomas singing to us, all that stuff. So she um, she wanted us to write a poem and she was giving us the directions and I just started to write a poem. And here is the first few lines of it. It was like, pollution is nasty, garbage is too. Why isn't the sky clear, clear blue? The birds have left without saying goodbye. They are not in the sky. It was something like that. Anyway, I wrote this poem and she wrote, and remember back then you had to write it on yellow paper, your scrap paper, and then you had to write it all over again, neater, without mistakes on your white paper with the proper heading, right? So I did that piece. And she wrote, when I did the yellow scrap paper, she wrote on the paper, you are a good writer. And it was the first time that somebody had really said I was good at anything in particular, right? And I, you know, teachers are so important because they can say something to a child, both positive and negative, right? They could say something to a child that changes the course of how that child sees themselves. And I'm lucky that Mrs. Zuckerman didn't say to me, you're impossible. (laughs) You don't don't listen or whatever would have been perfectly reasonable thing to say. But she said you're a good writer instead and and after that I loved writing anything I could for her and I you know in school I was the kid who liked essay assignments and signed up for the newspaper and all of those things and you know and it just kept building I didn't have courage to be a writer until much later in life because you know making a living in the arts can be hard. And I tried to do all other things right before I was a writer, but eventually Mrs. Zuckerman's original sort of boost merged with all the other life experiences. And it sort of pointed me towards writing. Speaking of, I think it's always so important, right? Because I, I feel like it's never too late to find your passion. It's never too late to, to start something that you love. And I feel like our society has kind of been like, if you don't find it in your twenties, oh like, you're wasting yeah. your life or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, when you're not, I think nothing permanent should happen in your twenties, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like our twenties really should be making the mistakes <laughs> yes. and living life. And yeah, like learn from that and then start in your thirties. Right. So what are the things that you went through that you failed up at? Right to eventually lead you to be, to have the courage to write. Yeah. So I had every career you can imagine. So I, I was a communications major in college. I thought I was going to do PR. I think is what I thought, but I had no idea what PR was. Strategic communications major. Okay. (laughs) Right. I said, okay, that looks good. I like to talk. I like to write. Perfect. Right. So I signed me up. So I studied that and I had an English minor. And I realized how much I love to read literature and write literature. And so in college, I remember thinking, I might want to write. I might want to be a journalist. But 
I was really afraid to do it. So out of college, I became an editorial assistant at a publishing house in New York. I was terrible at that job. I quit that job. Then I became, New York City was having a shortage of teachers. And so I said, well, while I'm figuring out what I really want to do with my life, I will just be a teacher as though that is something that you can just do. It was what a ridiculous thing. Only somebody in their 20s would think that, right? So they, and, and foolishly, New York was desperate enough for teachers that they did. They gave me, all you had to do was promise that you would take like 15 credits in education. They gave you the keys to a classroom and the fate of 36 little kids who were Holy in your class. Molly. Oh my gosh. PS 19 in Queens. But here's what happened. I fell in love with those children. It was the hardest year of my life. These kids were very newly arrived. Some of them like when I say newly arrived, like a week or two in this country, mostly from the Dominican Republic, it was in the Corona Junction Boulevard area, which at that time was heavily Dominican. And because I could speak Spanish, of course, I could go and visit their families and say, hola, que tal? Yo soy la señorita Meg, you know, et cetera. And um, I created a relationship with those families. And I just fell in love with those children. They, I still remember their names. I still remember where they sat. And I, there was something about being with kids that, that really drew me. That led to a 10-year teaching career. I really loved it. And I taught in New York. Then we moved to uh, Florida. And I was a teacher there. But all the while, inside of myself, I still wanted to write and I was teaching writing. Eventually, I started to teach writing to um, high school kids. I was a creative writing teacher. And I loved those those kids, too. I loved how snarky teenagers are and how they're asking all like the hard questions. And like they know they can smell a rat in adults and they they want to know. And I loved that about them. And I loved helping them figure out how to use writing to ask those questions or, or to explore their ideas about those things. So that, that was very cool, but it wasn't writing. So I started to have children, like my life was just sort of going along, but inside of myself, I had this longing that being a mother wasn't filling, being a teacher wasn't filling, nothing was filling this space that said, but I thought you were going to write something. So by the time I decided I was already 40 years old and my daughter, Christina, my oldest daughter has intellectual disabilities and she was attending a school where I was doing PR work (laughs) for the school, (laughs) right? Gigantic circle, right? And my office was literally a little broom closet. It had been a closet where they had stored the mops and all the cleaning supplies. So there I was with my desk facing a cinder block wall and pipes and the faint smell of pine soil in the air. And I said, if I do not try to write, I'm going to go into old age and never have done what I really wanted to do. So I went into the principal and I quit my job. And I said, I'm going to write a novel. And she looked at me with that face that was like, yeah, sure, you're going to write a novel. And I came home to Javier, my husband, and I said the same. And he did not look at me with that face. He got pale, but he said to me, I think you could do it. He fronted us, you know, for a year while I wrote that novel um, and got an agent and things like that. And I'm 
very lucky that I sold that novel to um, the very first novel I wrote was called Milagros Girl from Away. It came out from Henry Holt. That book's no longer in print, but that was the first novel. And then so actually the- that makes me want to, I have a couple of questions just based yeah. on that. Jump so for, first of all, my dad's name is Javier. So <laughs> I love that name. But how did it boost your confidence or make you nervous? The fact, I mean, the fact that he was like, I think you could do it. And he was willing to be the sole supporter for the family for that year while you were working on that. Like what kind of impact emotionally did that have on you? Listen, when you are moving through your life, not doing what you really want to do, you are deeply sad. And that's where I was emotionally. And so I need, I needed to try this like I needed to breathe. And I feel really fortunate that he gave me that space and that we were able to knit together, like the finances and so on, to try and that it worked out. Because I was, it's a really hard thing to live your life completely deferring this thing that you really wanted to do. When you are meant to do something, like it's like air. So I did other jobs. I could do other jobs. I was successful at other jobs, but that wasn't the thing. The thing was that this was the dream piece. This was the thing that was like hardwired deep inside of me. And so sometimes it takes courage. It takes support. You know, there are a lot of, especially a lot of women I meet, creative, fantastic women. Like it's it's hard. I had the, the good fortune of having a supportive partner, right? But it, it can be tough if you don't, if the finances aren't working out or any of those things. So in, in my case, I would say the stars aligned on that. It did feel like pressure. Like if I fail, then what, right? But here's what I find out about a creative life. And maybe you're finding out this with your podcast and other creative endeavors. Like a creative life isn't like a straight line up. It's up and down and up and down and up and down like everything else, right? You're going to have periods of your creative life that are really fruitful, where you're really successful. Then you're not going to know what to do. You're going to wonder, what? why am I in this? I'm terrible at this. I should quit. I should go back to whatever. And then it takes off again and you get another inspiration. You know, it's there's no guarantee. The only guarantee is that you're doing the thing that feels exactly right to you. But it, there's no guarantee that it, it, that it will be easy. No, I definitely have felt those things with the podcast and where I've felt like, is anybody even listening? Does anybody even right. care? Like, right. you know, I have a, a full-time job and then I have this. And this is basically another, like at least a part-time job, right? I'm more, I, sure. I work so much on, on the podcast in regards to trying to find guests that I feel like will speak to the, my audience and who I'm interested in learning about. Because if I'm if I'm not interested, then why would I expect my audience to be interested, right? Just all of the things that come with that and promoting it and this and that. And then I sometimes see people who have been very successful and are only doing this. They get to the point where they're only doing this or or they have other things that they're able to do. And 
I'm not going to lie. Like there's some envy there or maybe jealousy. I don't know. Like, not like, Oh, I don't want them. Like I'm jealous that they're doing so well because I want to see that for myself in this arena as well. Right. I don't berate them for anything because they're people I know. And I know that how hard they work. And I think that all of the people that I know that are doing great, like deserve it. They work their asses off. And at the same time, I'm like, I work my ass off too. Like, when do I get to do that? Right. You know what? I do this. I do these uh, one minute writing tips. They come on Instagram and also on TikTok. If anybody is out there, it's Meg Medina books. But anyway, I did one on professional envy because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It happens and it happens to every those people who are really successful or whatever, have professional envy of somebody else or an envy of something else. And so like we're conditioned to think of, of envy, you know, just you know, biblically as like the bad thing. Right. You know, envidiosa, you know, like cueing the terrible <laughs> telenovela. I'm gonna get struck down. <laughs> you know, like that's the worst thing. But Mina, this is the thing, like when you're sitting around, you're just like, all right, from a writer's perspective, like, oh my gosh, this person got on the such and such New York Times bestseller list, or this person's book got made into a movie, or this person got a big contract, or people like that person more. And then it gets stupid. They have better clothes. They have, you know, you start just, it goes crazy. But the thing is like, you just have to own it. It's okay, right? To want things that feel like success to you and all of that stuff. And when I'm feeling envious, you know what I do? I call my friend. I have a couple of like dear writer friends. And I just say that. I just say it really honestly. I feel really jealous of this right now. I'm feeling really bad about X or Y. And I just, because it defangs the beast. You know, I I don't feel like I'm carrying around like a dirty secret or anything like that. Like it's just natural, right? Especially if you're working hard, as I know you are on on this podcast. And for sure, I'm working hard, you know, on my books. And then the other thing is that we live in a world that is so curated, right? So what we see, right? What we see and what is are two different things. Oh my gosh. It's so true. No, it's so true. Look, I try to be as real as I can on social media and stuff. And then sometimes I feel like I get blocked, right? Especially because that's what I, that's part of my job. Since I started my, my job about seven months ago, I do all of the social media, but I do all the communication. So I do like the press, like I do the press releases, the quotes, the media relations and all social media. And so I find my, I find when I'm home, I don't want to be on. Like I get, I'm exhausted and I'm like, but that's how people, you know, that's one of the avenues that people find the podcast and learn about all these really cool guests that I am so honored to have on. And it becomes this, like, I don't want to be that once a week person only plugging the podcast because there's so much more right beyond like talking about wine or just talking about different things. And I'm like, I should be talking about this. Like, the burnout sometimes that you feel like, and then I get out like, you know, and, and I say it and then I had like, Oh, something else catches my attention because something else needs it. And, and it's so true because we want to be so curated. And I'm like, I am so tired of wanting to make things look perfect because my life is far from perfect right now. I'm in, I'm in one of the biggest highs of my life right now. 
and coming out from one of the biggest lows of my life. Like I was in one of the biggest lows. I actually talked about it, uh, you know, on the podcast in regards to like being scared and afraid and not knowing what I was going to do in December, like the beginning of December, not even knowing how I was going to pay my rent Uh, to being like getting rental government rental assistance which was really hard to take. And it's really hard to say because that's a very like ego driven thing, right? Especially when you feel like you've worked really hard and now you need assistance to now like having this new job. And now I have sponsors for the podcast that I'm going to break six figures for the first time ever in my life this year. Congrats. Oh, wait, we have to drink to that. Where's your glass? All right, make the ping. Are you ready? <laughs> ah, salut. <laughs> Congratulations. And then I'm in a relationship that I wasn't. So it's like all of these things I'm in, but it was a very like low, like I was in a deep in the valley. And now I'm like, not at the peak. I don't ever want to be at the peak. Right. I just want to keep going. And I think people appreciate it, but it's just, we can't be afraid to, to show that. Like you said, we always want everything that, we do, we want it to be so curated, but I think people are tired of that. I think people yeah. are tired of the curating. They want to just see something real at this point. Yep. I think um, so. You were, talking, oh, oh, I'm I'm sorry. Sorry. you were talking about like getting an agent and everything like that. Like I know public, there's this whole thing in regards to submit a manuscript to a publisher. You have to have an agent, but oftentimes in order to have an agent, you have to have something published. Like what was that process like? Was it difficult selling a book that was so centered within the Latino community? Yeah. So, um, all right. So the process of what it looked like for me, and then I'm going to finish by telling, you know, giving you some, like if somebody's listening who wants to do it, just, it would be a little bit different now. So the process for me was basically that I did the very traditional way. I went I joined an organization called the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. It's called SCBWI. Um, and they have an, it's a national organization. It has chapters in each state. So you would just look them up, scbwi.org, and find your chapter. And they have writing groups and conferences and places. The conferences are really good, not only to meet other writers who are writing what you're doing, but at the time, especially to figure out, you know, they did a lot of sessions on just like the business of publishing. What's a query letter? What does an agent do? Like all of the really basic entry questions that someone who's not from the literary world would have, right? There was nobody in my family who was a writer. Like who was I going to ask about an agent or anything like that? I had no clue whatsoever. So that organization was really helpful to me at the time. Now, today, there's many other organizations, especially for Latina women. I would say definitely if you're a writer, look up an organization called Las Musas, which is a group of Latina women who are writers. It's a collective and they help each other publish and and get the word out of on their books they do an incredible latino children's book festival um they're really really awesome so las musas there's another place called quelly 
uh, which also does conferences and things like that. So you can, and with Zoom, it becomes more affordable, right? With SCPWI, there was no expectation also that you had to be published. Like some people are like, I can't join that organization. I've never published a single word. And that's the point. That's the point of SCPWI, to help pre-published writers understand the landscape and understand, um, you know, the how-to. And so the how-to, in its most simplistic form, Step one is write. You'd be surprised how many people I meet who have always wanted to write a book, but never quite have the time to sit down and write it. So how are you going to publish a book, right? You have to write the thing, right? So you need to write and work on craft. And when I say work on craft, like have people that you share your work with, like improve it, take classes in writing, that kind of thing. So write. The second thing is, is create community, find a community, either SCBWI, Las Musas, Quelly, you know, there's others, but find community. The third thing, when you're ready to start like, okay, I've got this as good as I can get it. I think it's ready. You do need an agent. And there is a book. It's available both in hard copy and online. The Writer's Digest Guide to Literary Markets. There's one for children and there's one just for general for literary markets. And what that is, is a listing of every literary agent accepting work. And it lists what they're accepting, how they want to be approached. Like they'll say, send me the first 10 pages and a synopsis, send me the whole thing you know, whatever. Uh, and you know, what the, what the terms are, their address and all of that stuff. Finding an agent is often like the most heartbreaking process, right? Because you're sending it out and sending it out. And sometimes they don't answer you or they, you feel like, does anybody even read this at all? And I did that for six months before I found my agent. When she called me, her name is Jen. I said, oh my gosh, I wrote to you six months ago. I, I was sure that, you know, you were passing. And she laughed. She said, six months in publishing, that's a blink of an eye. And that's kind of true. You know, like you have to know that they'll take a while. And for me, I made a big spreadsheet and I would send my manuscript out to six places at a time. And when I got a rejection, I would write down, if they gave me a reason of why they were rejecting, I'd write it down just in case there was something to be learned there, you know, like I didn't like the, the characters didn't resonate or whatever it was like just keeping notes because right. if like five people tell you the same thing, you may need to go back to your manuscript and start back at part A. And then it's the agent really, you really want the agent to, because they're the ones with the contact at the publishing company. They know the editors, what the editors are looking for. And more important, they are the ones who negotiate the contract. If you've ever seen a publishing contract, it's this big fat thing with lots of jargon and percentages and terms and so on. So an agent helps you understand that and negotiates the best deal for you so that you're keeping the rights and that your work is protected and that your career is protected. So, um, you know, the agent works with, it, that, that's their job. They, they sell the book. And then, you know, you're just continually in that loop. Then you write the next one, you know, the agent, your agent will typically rep all your work. So that's what I would do. 
Yeah. I want to read some of the titles of your books. Oh, we're talking about your Tia Isa and you actually have a book say Tia Isa wants a car. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, Evelyn Del Rey is moving away. Mengua Abuela and me. And then you have She Persisted. Yes. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor. Mm-hmm. I like her, her story. Burn Baby Burn, like you were talking about. Yaki Delgado wants to kick your ass. Yeah. Uh, the girl who could silence the wind. And then you have your trilogy of mercy. Yes. Yeah. Mercy Suarez changes gears. Mercy Suarez can't dance. Mercy Suarez plays it cool. No. I want to know if somebody has never read any of the mercy books. Oh. What do they need to know going into reading them? Because I would assume it's a trilogy. So you want people to read them in order. But what people, what are the, what is the thing that people should know when they just getting into the books, into the mercy books? Well, I would say first, the joy is that they can actually read each one. Like, let's say they just grab the middle one, right? Or the last one or whatever. Like you would still be able to have a good experience with the book, oh, like good. just based with that book. It is a richer experience if you start at the beginning, because in this traces a girl named Mercy Suarez. The first book is set in her sixth grade year. The second book, Mercy Suarez Can't Dance in the seventh grade. And the last book, Mercy Suarez Plays It Cool in the eighth grade. So I want you to think back, Jessica, to yourself in middle school. Da, 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 oh, yeah. more yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm, so... I'm very different, yet very much the same. (laughs) Okay. But remember, like in the sixth grade, you're a little girl, right? Yeah. And by the eighth grade, like all of your perceptions have changed. Your body has changed. Your friends have changed. Like everything has just been struck. And it is really a goofy time and a painful time. Like it's all the things. Mm -hmm. And so... Middle school teachers are like, they're very special to teach middle (laughs) school. (laughs) They deserve medals. They do. They do. Uh, But, you know, good middle school teachers love middle school kids. Like, they don't want to teach anybody else. I have have friends who are middle school teachers, and I'm like, God bless you. (laughs) I mean, me and my friends in seventh grade were so horrible to our language arts teacher. I was not in the bad, bad class. I was Uh still like trying. I would act up a little bit. Not like that. That he retired after our year. (laughs) What did you beast do to him? (laughs) I don't know. Made him retire. Poor man. I'm so sorry. (laughs) He's probably with a bottle of wine somewhere. He was already old, so I'm. He's probably with God, drinking, going. Yeah, you did this to me. (laughs) Well, if it's any consolation, I don't think I was much better in middle school either. But this is what it is. This is a look at at Mercy. She's in the sixth grade when we first meet her, and we meet her whole family, her whole extended family. And the way she lives is in three houses, Las Tres Casitas in South Florida. She lives in her house with mommy and papi and her brother, Roli, who's a science genius. Then next door are abuelo and abuela. That's papi's parent. And then on the end is Tia Inez, papi's sister, and the twins who are psycho. 
those twins, right? So, y todos viven ahí, three little houses connected, everybody's in everybody's business, everybody's opening people's refrigerators, Mercy's always got a babysit, the whole catastrophe, right, of, of being raised by a big, budinsky, loud, loving Latino family. And in the first book, they, there is a secret that the family has been keeping from Mercy, but that now has to come out because of the situation. And that is that Lolo is ill. He, he has been struggling with Alzheimer's, which is now moving into its final stages. Mm -hmm. And so the three books look at Mercy growing up and loving her family and figuring out friends and frenemies and, you know, life in this private school, right? When you're the scholarship kid and she's learning about love and life and death, I think ultimately. So it's a really funny series, which doesn't sound like it from the way I'm describing it, but she's funny and her family's funny and you just love them. And underneath the humor is a real look at the situation that come situations that come up in Latino families that come up when money is scarce that come up when you know you live in a family where everybody's sort of raising everybody and when a big problem comes up and how do we solve it and and how does love play into how we solve things when we're growing up so. It's been a beautiful experience to write those novels. It's been beautiful professionally, especially because Mercy Suarez Changes Gears was so decorated and got such a beautiful reception. But more, it was like the naming of our families that felt really good to me and really satisfying. So many times, like the stories that get written about Latino families are, you know, the stories that have to do with stereotypes that, that are made about our community, drug lords, or, you know, like, or the, the hardest corners of our, of our experiences. And we forget to write the stories of the everyday families, right, that are, that are pushing along and raising kids and so on. That's and that's what this is. I think that is so important because I feel like sometimes we know that families struggle. I have friends who they grew up in struggle and now they're not. We were growing up, we were very middle-class and it's almost like we gatekeep our own community in regards to how well we speak Spanish or don't. Right. We also gatekeep our own community in regards to the struggle that we have or not. And isn't the point that we want to continue to do better so why do we need to feel guilty and why do we need to only focus on that part of the struggle? You can still, like I said, we grew up very middle-class. That doesn't mean that I didn't have struggles. My struggles may have been different, but they're my struggles and that doesn't discount them. So I'm so appreciative of you bringing that type of perspective in regards to that. What made you want to write for like a, for children and young adults? Wide focus there. You know, children are at the beginning of everything. First of all, like just philosophically, right? Philosophically, I feel like childhood ought to be sacred. It isn't, as we know, 
but it ought to be, you know, it's this beautiful time when you're just like discovering yourself and the world and it ought to be a beautiful thing. So when I'm writing to kids, I'm, I'm aware of all the things like they're up against right there, especially in our community, separations from their families or economic struggles or secrets that have to be kept, right? In terms of like even the documentation, like all kinds of things, just average everyday problems that come up with friends and acceptance and all of those like painful little things that happen to us as we're growing up. I remember them so well. And so when I write for kids, I like to think that what I'm putting down there is a way for them to think about themselves and their friends and their lives. It's not so much like definitely teachers will use books in classroom and, you know, kids have to answer questions about them or write a report or whatever they do these days with, with books. But that's not the magic of children's and books, the children with books. The magic happens super privately. When in your kid, head. Yes. When the kid is there reading and nobody else is around and they are asking themselves, who am I in the story? What should this person do next? Wow, that's crazy. That's where you grow people. That's where you give people depth. When they take a few minutes to like consider things and consider people and other points of view and really hard problems and how they might be solved and how they might be made worse, like all of those things. So I don't know. I, I love that about writing for children. And I think because I found growing up so hard, you know, especially high school years were just, I, if I could erase them, you know, except for what they gave me for writing material, right? It was painful. I mean, it's nice to think that maybe books can be like a light in a cave, you know, like help them find a way out and a way to persevere. Because, you know, like this idea that, that childhood is this great, easy you know, you don't have problems kind of time of your life is just, you know, out there because yeah, we should definitely awesome. never negate <laughs> no. the problems that kids have, you know, kids and teens, because they have to, they want to feel supported as well. Right. And be able to get through that. Has anybody ever told you something negatively that affected what you thought you could or couldn't do? You mean as a writer or just in life in general, that maybe helped or may, that stopped you, prevented you from getting to writing sooner. So whether it's yeah. as a writer or just in life where you, it kind of stifled you. Yeah. Well, ironically, you know, my mother wanted me to work at the phone company really badly because, you know, from her perspective, she wanted me to have a secure job and a job that had benefits. She didn't want me to suffer. She wanted me to have a middle-class life that she was struggling to, to reach, right? So you say to someone like that, oh, I'm going to be an artist, or I'm going to be a writer. You know, they get, se ponen blanco en cana. You know, they get afraid at the thought of that because it feels like so risky. So, you know, I can't say that my mother was very fond of my career choice until much later. You know, when I wrote Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass, in fact, my mother had, um, just been diagnosed with cancer 
she had advanced colon cancer and she was living in Florida. And I had the year before my book, The Aisa Once a Car had come out and the Spanish edition came out. And my aunt's name was the Aisa, who, guess what, bought the first family car, right? So I had taken Isa the book, you know, so they could see it. You know, they got in bed together and they cried and all of, all of the things. And then, you know, fast forward, here I was writing this book and my mother was very sick. And, and I brought Isa and my mother to live with me because my mother had decided she didn't want treatment. She wanted to she wanted to just finish her day. She was in her 80s and that was that. So my mother got to see my success as a writer. You know, she got to see that our life, Isa, that our experiences could be worthy of a book and could exist there. She got to see, live with me and experience my life here with Javier and with my children. So, you know, we had such a hard time together, my mother and me, when I was young, growing up. But there was something about the books and about, you know, that terrible time in her life that merged. And really, one of the final memories I have of my mother, because she she chose to, to pass away here at home. She didn't want to pass away in the hospital. So we had hospice here. And in her final days, you know, the cancer just took everything from her, including her memory. And she was sitting up in her hospital bed and she had the Aisa wants a car, the book near her. And she kept leafing through it and she kept calling me over to tell me that I really should read this book, that it was a very good book. Life offers you so many things, right? Yeah. It offers you so many sad things, so many happy things. But uh, that was one that was both. Well, my heart goes out for your loss, but it also sounds like it was, it's also a time of healing that you were able to have with your mom. And I think that when you're able to do that, that's always a beautiful thing, especially when she passes to the next phase that it allows you to have some sort of peace, right? I've had that with other family members. I'm, I'm very grateful that my parents are still here, but you know, there will come a time when, when they won't be. And I, and I think having peace as somebody passes is such a huge thing. What is the best on the flip side? Because that was, I think, like an emotional thing, right? But what is the best piece of advice that you, that somebody has ever given you that you take with you on a daily basis? Oh, on a daily basis, I would say, I don't, I don't know. I just, I would say as a writer, the best advice I got was from a, a professor, I was so worried that I, I, I was so shy about telling him that I wanted to be a writer. It felt like I was a fraud. Like who was I to tell somebody that I was going to be a writer? That just felt ridiculous. And I said, I don't know. And like, I was discounting it. He said, you know, you have this idea, like not every painter has to be Picasso. Like there are great painters who are not, you know, sitting in museums. He said, Find the kind of writing that makes your heart full and write that. And don't worry about not being successful if you're not, you know, this most celebrated X, Y, and Z. And and that's true. You know, we stop ourselves because we decide, well, I can't do this because unless I'm at that level, I won't be successful. And that's not the case. So I think on a practical level as a writer, that has been the thing. 
And then the advice that I always have to tell myself every day, because I am an anxious hearted person sometimes, is what my mother used to say to me, or my mother-in-law used to say to me all the time. No te mojes los pies antes de cruzar el río. Don't wet your feet before you have to cross the river. Yeah, we, we spend so much time agonizing and worrying and about the what ifs and so on. And it's not necessary. Worry a little if you have to, but get your feet wet when you're at the river. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. My, my daily thing is, the answer is always no, if you don't ask the question. That's always something my mom would tell me. It's like, no, no. And she's like, why not? If they say no, then nothing has changed. If they say yes, then you get what you want. Like ask the, my mom would tell me that all the time. The answer is always no, if you don't ask the question, the answer is always no. So that's like so embedded in my mind where I'm like, you know what? You're right. If you don't ask, you yeah. don't get right. And Self, that's like self-advocacy. Yep. Yes. Um, I know that the last book, I want to kind of go back to the Mercy Suarez trilogy yeah. is coming out in September. Yes. Where can people find the books? Can they pre-order the books? And then after, do you think that this is a character you will ever revisit or is, do have you completely shut the door on it? Oh, well, I, I think this will be the last medicine book because she began as a short story and there are three novels that feature her. You can get my books really where, wherever books are sold, you can pre-order certainly on Amazon or on IndieBound or Barnes and Noble, wherever you are comfortable buying books, bookshop.org. Merci Suarez plays it cool. You can find um, on any of those sites and feel free. I mean, I, I would always say to you, sure, start with the first one. I think you'll enjoy the ride, but um, if you want to start with the third, I think you'd be fine there too. And I know your website is megmedina.com. What mm -hmm. are their social media platforms are you on and how can people find you? Yes. So I'm on all of them, really. I'm on Meg. If you go to Insta, it's Meg Medina Books. I'm being on TikTok, Meg Medina Books. Um, and on Facebook, I think it's just Meg Medina, the author page. And that's it. Those are the three big ones that I... And Twitter, Meg underscore Medina is my handle there. So I'm, you know, it's a lot of social media. All over the oh place. my gosh. You have to know. Yes, I get it. I get it. So my final question to you, because I could talk to you forever. I'm so <laughs> enjoying this conversation and I want to like know everything about you. So that's why I keep bouncing around. Cause I'm like, wait, I remember if she said something, let's go back to this. Da, da, da. <laughs> um, what is next now? This is going to be the you're closing the door on the Mercy Suarez books. What is next for me? Well, yeah, I have two, three projects cooking. The first is I'm doing another little chapter book similar to the Sonia Sotomayor one, but this one's on Pura Belpre, who was the first Latino librarian in the New York City, New York public library system. One of the most fascinating Latinas I have ever read about. I cannot wait to write this book. So it's in the She Persisted um, series. So that will be coming out, I believe, next year. And then I'm writing a middle grade, which is, you know, books for kids who are 9 to 12, 
So it's a fantasy that takes place in the deep ocean, like the part of the ocean that is unexplored, which is most of the ocean. We've only explored about 2% of it. So I am really excited about that one. I'm scared to write it because I haven't written fantasy in a very long time, but it's fun. And I'm talking a lot about um, growing up there too. So those are the two big things going on. And then, you know, all of the, all of the little like daily ups and downs, I try to put those on, on my website. Sometimes I blog on there or um, sometimes uh, I'll, I'll tweet them out or whatever. There's always something buzzing around. Yeah. I like going to bookstore.org, right? Bookstore.org? Bookshop.org. Bookshop. Bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Yeah. Um, I like going there because they connect you with small bookstores and local bookstores and a lot of black and brown bookstores. So I like using them because I've used them a few times to get something. Please do. Meg, I always like to leave people with an opportunity to share anything that maybe I didn't ask. I try and ask as many things as I can, but we're always (laughs) on limited time. But if there's anything else that you want to add, please do so now. Oh, you know what I would add is this, is that I think especially Latino parents out there who are listening or if you have nieces and nephews, you know, keep your ear on the ground in terms of uh, book banning and all the stuff that goes on around people wanting to take different books off shelves and so on. A lot of Latino authors are being targeted for those things. And it's important that our community has books written by people within the community and that they're readily available. So just keep track of that. Don't step over it. Just keep track of what, what's going on in that, that issue if it comes to your neighborhood. And, um, and you know, remember, you know, we're, we're in this together and we need our, all our stories there um, to really fortify, I think, our kids and just basically name our experience. Absolutely. Nobody can tell our stories better than we can. That's right. Right. Thank you so much for sharing your story, (laughs) sharing your time, sharing wine with me. I I have enjoyed this so unbelievably much. (laughs) Me too. And you guys make sure to follow Meg on social, make sure to buy her book, support. You know, we're all about supporting uh, our gente here and just you know, being the most positive versions of ourselves that we can be. So do that. So until next time. Nos vemos. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.